Welcome back to Voices of the Sea, a podcast from the Navy League of the United States. We bring you to the deck plate to tell the real story of our sea services from the voices of the servicemen, women, and family members who make it happen all day, every day. I'm Anne. And I'm James. And today we are here with Captain George P. Sotos. Is that how? Is That's I, good, yeah. I, oh, yes. I got it. First try. <laughs> um, we're here with him to talk about his service as a World War II veteran um, and his book, Living with the Torpedo. And we also have our senior editor of Sea Power, uh, Rick Burgess, with us uh, calling in remotely. So we've got George here in the studio, and Rick is uh, zooming in from his home. So we we have two amazing uh, two amazing Navy veterans with us to kind of dive into some of these stories from definitely before our time, James. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My grandfather would probably know you better than I do, but. <laughs> so, um, Rick, do you want to just give a brief intro for our listeners, for people who may not may not know anything about you? Okay. Uh, thank you, Anne. My name is uh, uh, Richard Burgess. I'm a retired Navy Lieutenant Commander and currently a senior editor of Sea Power Magazine. Uh, I served in the Navy uh, uh, from 19... Uh, uh, 75 until uh, 1994, and that doesn't include my time as a midshipman in, in ROTC, which I went to see a couple times. Um, I was mostly in land-based patrol planes and intelligence, and also as uh, editor of Naval Aviation News. I did serve some time at sea on several aircraft carriers, on a staff, and on one destroyer escort, uh, guided missile destroyer escort in, the, in uh, the early 70s as a midshipman. Uh, I just want to mention that my uh, father was a Navy veteran also. He served in World War II and uh, and a full career, 21-year career. Wow. He was a pharmacist mate, and he also uh, was on a destroyer escort in the Battle of the Atlantic during World War II. It's the same as the captain who is our guest today. And so I'm very interested in hearing what he has to say about his time in the Battle of the Atlantic on his destroyer. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Well, I think that perfectly kind of segues into our, our main guest today. Captain, do you mind giving a little bit of an introduction to yourself about who you are and what your military career was? Well, I could talk a long time, but of course. I'll be as short as I can. <laughs> I got in the Navy in 1940. I was a student at the University of Chicago, and I wanted to see the world. <laughs> uh, I joined a program called the V7 program. It turned out to be labeled the 97, the 90-day wonder program. You get a commission after three months uh, instruction. Wow. Uh, then I, my first ship was a nitro, an ammunition ship, uh, ostensibly for training, and it was good training. Uh, the nitro was one of two big ammunition ships that traveled all over the world, uh, picking up old ammunition and supplying new ammunition. And because it traveled so much, it also had a lot of passengers. I was rotated between departments on the ship, engineering department, gunnery department, tech department, navigation. I had about two, three months in each department. Wow. Uh, and uh, like every new young officer, I had my problems with the exec. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he called me the red-ass ensign. <laughs> Simply because I handled one of his phone calls wrong. Uh, phone yeah. call with a young lady who was uh, 
a dancer in Sally Rand's Nude Ranch. <laughs> oh, my. I don't know if these items are okay for this. Yes. <laughs> all stories are good stories. <laughs> Tell away. <laughs> anyway, he, he gave me a hard time, so I avoided him for two or three months. He'd go down the port side and I'd go the other side. <laughs> I injured my leg on the ship, and uh, that changed things. He came down sick bay to see me, and we became friends after that. The Nitro was a really outstanding training ship because it was all old sailors that knew their way around, mm. and they taught me a lot. But the ship had, ship had never shot, and do you want me to tell when the war started? I was on the Nitro. Ah. And uh, we were 100 miles from Panama early in the morning, and we got this hot telegram, help dispatch. Japanese Empire has attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, this is no drill. Uh, execute war plan, I think it was 46, which we knew nothing about. Well, we arrived in Panama, and they told us to anchor out uh, for good reasons, because you know, we were loaded with ammunition. Mm. And uh, an ammunition ship blowing up is almost like an atom bomb. And they have blown up two or three of them, one in Canada and uh, one in Manus. Oh, wow. Uh, the ships virtually disappear. Wow. I may be getting off the story here, but uh, that was my <laughs> first ship. So uh, they have stories on these ammunition ships, like I'm telling you now. We had a plaque on the quarter deck of the Nitro that described the explosion of a French uh, ammunition carrier in Halifax. It's called the Halifax Incident. It was the biggest explosion uh, until the atom bomb came along. It killed something like 1,900 people on the beach. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, Heard many more. So we were very sensitive to fire and things like that. Mm. Uh, when the war started, uh, none of us knew what to do, including the captain. Mm. My first night at war on the Nitro, uh, we were along, they let us go in alongside the dock. Now, I'm a young ensign. I'm the gunnery officer. and that, This is my tour on the, in the gunnery department. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, we got this battle station's alarm. And I, I rushed to my gun station. And, uh, there's an unknown plane in the area. Searchlights from the ships that were trying to find the, isolate the plane. Uh, and the gunners, I had two guns. I had two 3-inch 50 guns. And the gun captain once said, uh, should we load? And the other one, yes, shall we load? So I said, load the guns. Came the word that we can't get the ammunition lock or the lock. Another voice chimed in, but Warren officer who was in charge of that, he said, only the captain can open open those, uh, can give the order to open those lockers. And I said to him, give me the keys. He, no, I won't give you the keys. Only oh. the captain. So I ordered the sighters to break the open lockers. Oh, wow. wow. Uh, I was excited, <laughs> as you can see. And I had read a little bit of what happened to Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was worried. Yeah. So they loaded the guns. Before they loaded the guns, they they, they, they broke up the lockers. And the warrant officer left, went to the bridge to get the captain, who was pretty busy. Um, the gun captain said, what fuse setting should we, should we put on these guns? So I gave him a guess, three seconds. So they put three seconds on. They both loaded the guns. We no longer loaded the guns, and we got the word from the bridge 
to secure from battle stations is a friendly plane. Oh, no. <laughs> and my gun, too, gun captain, was a pretty smart young fellow. He, he opened the breach and pulled the gun shell out and walked to the side of the ship and dropped it over. But the other one was too slow, and he was about to open the breach, and the captain and the warrant officer showed up and don't unload that breach. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, that's where you get explosions. Oh, God. Oof. I didn't know that. My gun crew didn't know it. That's how much we knew about shooting. Wow. Mm. So the captain, a very fine man, he told the warrant officer to keep quiet. And, and he told me to put a watch on the gun, point it up in the air, and secure. And that's what I did. Of course, I was shook up. And uh, after I set the set the watch, uh, I was about to leave. It's about three in the morning now, and I get word the captain wants to see me. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been in the captain's cabin a couple of times, but uh, not under these circumstances. Sure. But when I knocked at the door, he said, "Come in, George." I didn't know he knew my first name, <laughs> so that made the entrance a little bit nicer. And he had his shirt off. He was getting ready to get back in bed. And he said, you know, you made a mistake, young man. I said, yes, sir. Uh, he said, Mr. Etheridge, that was the warrant officer's name. He's, he's a fine man. He knows more about ordinance than you or I. And when he tells you something, you should listen. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and he said, well, you had a pretty bad morning. Uh, go down and get some sleep. That was it. Wow. And he never said a word after that. Uh, but it was the beginning of a <laughs> strange reputation for me because we had to eject that shell at some point. So when we got through the canal the next day, we we unloaded our ammunition and loaded very fast, and people were streaming aboard with boxes to uh, mail back in the States. And we're still all a little bit shaky because we're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, we went through the canal after we unloaded and went out the other side. And after we cleared the channel to the Atlantic, uh, the exec called me. He said, we're going to load the gun now. Get your gun crews up there. He said, well, shoot when I tell you. Hmm. So I did that, and uh, we passed the word over the ship. We didn't have the loudspeakers in those days. It was all with a boats and whistle, <laughs> which you could understand half of the time <laughs> <laughs> but beautiful music sure uh, but i had the guns ready pointed up in the air and the exec nodded to me so i told me shoot anyway it went off made a big explosion it was the only time anyone in the ship had seen the, the guns go off mm. that's how ready we were for war <laughs> wow. uh, it also got me a reputation from being a, a unknown ensign, I I was the person. It was like a catalyst, hmm. um, and a, a kind of a, a pleasure for me to go from being known not at all to hi, Mister Sodas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's got yeah. It's pretty nice to get that kind of recognition. That's yeah. an amazing start to a career. Absolutely. Uh Well, they signed two destroyers to us, to export us to uh, 
escort us, and we promptly lost them that night. I was a junior officer of the deck. I had qualified as a senior officer of the deck, but they changed it because of the war. Mm. And I, my OD asked me to check and see if I could see the escorts. It was night, darkened ship. And I learned how to look at night. It takes some time, but I couldn't find the escorts. And uh, I told him, he called the captain, the navigator. They came up. We couldn't find the escorts. It turned, and then we, they did some investigating and determined that the OOD we were about to relieve had made a mistake. He had zigged when he should have zagged. <laughs> that sounds kind of childish, but that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and we never saw those stores again. <laughs> you know, there's an ammunition ship going up the East Coast, loaded with ammunition and no escorts. Wow. Uh, we made it to uh, Norfolk. And, of course, they all thought that we had been sunk. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a heady thing to go to war on an ammunition ship. Once they find out you're on an ammunition ship, they want you out. Mm. Well, that's what, you know, that's what I was going to ask. You were in the Navy before even the war had started. That's right. So was there any sort of idea that you had when you joined that we might be going into this a, a second big world war? Not one I owed of an idea. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was the most unready. Of course, I learned a lot later. Sure. And I know what readiness is. This was not readiness. Mm. Not at all. The captain made an announcement about the war, but he didn't say too much. Mm -hmm. uh, the only time we really got worried when we lost the escorts. <laughs> uh, we couldn't find them. Right. But to Norfolk, and we could tell. Uh, we got to Norfolk, but they weren't too happy to see us. <laughs> they loaded us with the ammunition, put us in a convoy, and sent us to Newfoundland again with escorts. This time we didn't lose them. Okay. Well, that's better. <laughs> that's improvement. But the escorts uh, <laughs> up near uh, Cape Race, I, I forget where it was, uh, got sonar contacts. And from the first time in my life, I saw a destroyer attack a submarine, drop depth charges, and that's kind of worrisome, mm -hmm. particularly, particularly when you know nothing about chasing submarines, mm -hmm. absolutely nothing. You know, we didn't know anything. Uh, see, the, Ascar, the uh, depth charges going off, and that's exciting, uh, but you, you wonder what's going on. Right. Particularly when you've never even heard a ping. You have no idea mm. what the destroyers are finding and how they're finding it. And they're zigzagging around and telling us to get the hell out of there. Uh, well, anyway, we got to Newfoundland, unloaded our cargo. On the way back, I put in the tra for a transfer to go to a subchaser. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I wanted to find out what was going on. And I got orders. About a week later, I got orders to become the exec on a PC boat, PC-476. No one believed it. I didn't believe it myself. <laughs> you don't go from a, a, an ensign, not even a senior ensign, one of the lower-ranked ensigns, uh, to second in command of a ship. Wow. How did that occur? Was it just there was a lack of, of available officers who could do those jobs? <laughs> no. Of course, you know, I've done a lot of research since then. Mm -hmm. I've read a lot of books and what they knew and what they didn't know and uh, who was in charge and things like that. 
there are many sides to this, but my side from my research is that they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> well, that's uh, reassuring. This a theme, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they had written me off very nicely on a nitro. I was a qualified OOD. That enough is a, that is enough to get you on a better ship, a bigger ship. And they, they didn't say I was going to be exec, but that we knew that that's what it was. So uh, I suddenly realized that uh, I thought I was in trouble, but I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were very nice. The going away on the nitro was uh, very very unusual, very nice. They made me a big wooden footlocker and with brass fittings and put my name on it. And the exec who had finally uh, come around, to, uh, uh, I guess he got to like me. Uh, came in and said goodbye. And the navigator who had given me a real hard time, navigation for me came hard. That is a story in itself. He was a merchant marine officer, mm. uh, and he didn't like the way the Navy taught navigation. Interesting. And who there were, does, there right were four of us ensigns. So he wanted me to learn navigation the way he did. So... My first day to navigate, I went up to get the navigation books the way I learned in the V7 school. And the quartermaster chief said, no, I can't give you these. He said, the navigator wants you to do it a different way. I said, there's no, there's no other way. <laughs> he said, yes, there is. You're going to do it his way. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, go see the navigator. I hadn't talked to the navigator hardly at all. I went to see him, and he said, George, he said, uh, the Navy wastes too much time teaching people to navigate. Navigation is a big production here. He said, the merchant marine, the officer of the watch does the navigating. He doesn't have a separate navigator. Big surprise to me. And he said, you're going to learn navigation like I did. Hmm. And he pulled out a little black book called Dreisenstock. And he said, this is your Bible. Don't bother the chief for the other books. He said, it's not him, it's me. <laughs> if you have any problems, you've got to come to me. Mm. And he was a taciturn type of guy. You know, he didn't want to go to him. <laughs> <laughs> but then I studied the book. I had to. I had no choice. And the other ensigns thought I had done something wrong <laughs> because they had learned the HO214 way of uh, navigating, uh, which is straightforward once you've been through it. But to take a little book, very thin, as you've never seen before, and expect to navigate in two or three weeks, uh, I was shook up. But I learned. I studied and studied, and I got to use Dreisenstock. And he let me use his chart when I plotted my fixes. And slowly they got better. Slowly my fixes came closer and closer to his. You know, it, it's, you, you be very proud of yourself when you're an ensign and you have these problems. And these are the days, remember, for our listeners, um, there was no internet, people. This is <laughs> pre-internet, if you can imagine. Pre-cell phone, right? Your your communications were uh, Morse code, yes? Not for me. No. This verbal. Verbal. So... It's just, uh, it's amazing to hear, you know, uh, the, even the thought of, I think, people pulling out a map, like a physical map, and trying to drive somewhere. I, I thought that I had done something wrong. <laughs> uh, but it turns out it made me different. 
and the uh, sailors, the quartermaster gang, they, they knew I was different. Uh, not because uh, I was smart, but because I was using rising stock. Hmm. And I talk about it in the book. Uh, I'm sure the midshipmen have never heard, ever heard of rising stock. Uh, Rick, have you ever heard that? No, no, I, 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 HO214, I've heard of though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, you ask yourself, what have I done wrong? You know, you're all by yourself. Uh, the chief boatswain mate, who was my mentor and a very good one, uh, he told me the navigator was an outstanding officer and I was lucky to be told what to do by the navigator. Well, I didn't believe him, but <laughs> uh, turns out he was right. Uh, the navigator got to, uh, took, a shine, took a shine to me. He was proud that his system worked. I got to making fixes as good as the, not as good as he did, but almost. Mm. Uh, and the other ensigns, who could not use Reisenstock, uh, saw my fixes also. So it made me different. Uh, it's good to be. Different. I didn't know it at that time, but I knew that the sailors looked at me a little bit different. <laughs> anyway, with that background, I went to the PC four seventy six, which is a real storybook in itself. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, I arrived in New Orleans, and I really never been away from home a lot. Mm -hmm. I got a room in a boarding house, and I wanted to see the ship, so I went to the navy yard. They were in the Todd shipyard. But it wasn't there. I went to the ship, but I couldn't find it. I came back late at night. And New Orleans has these uh, surface cemeteries. Yes. They don't bury in under the surface. I didn't oh. know that. Wow. And the place I got the uh, room was near one. I got lost in that cemetery <laughs> about 10 o'clock at night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's the stuff of horror movies, my friend. <laughs> there are a lot of cemeteries in New Orleans. I, I lived in New Orleans for several years, so I'm familiar with the... The surface cemeteries? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh. the ground, it's, you know, the, the, the lake is there, right, on one side, and you've got the river on the other, and New Orleans is in this big basin. So if you dig down even a little bit, uh, you're going to hit water. Well, so. did, you, did you ever get lost in one of those... Uh, they have monuments all yes, over. Yes, and it's it's very hard to navigate. It just sounds spooky to me. I know. didn't have any uh, navigation tools at my disposal in the uh. 70s. <laughs> but uh. yes, it's very easy to get lost. And there are so many cemeteries that kind of interconnect. So I can, I well, can definitely I'm telling see. myself, here I am, a U.S. Naval officer, <laughs> and I'm lost in a cemetery. I couldn't get out of the cemetery. It's not at sea. You're not navigating the waters. You're fine. It's I could, okay. I, I couldn't find the place where I was living. <laughs> I finally got the cab driver who helped me find the place where I was living. A couple of days later, the ship showed up at Todd Shipyard, and hmm. I went aboard. There were five sailors. With a, with a, the way I found the ship, I went in the shipyard, and it was full of yard workmen, big ships all over the place being repaired. And I stopped one of the fellows and said, do you know where the PC-476 is? He said, yeah, I think I do. He said, uh, over there. And he pointed at a pier, big merchant ships. And I said, no, it's a small uh, subject. He said, you see that little stick sticking up over the <laughs> bow of this? And I said, yeah. he said, that, he said that's the main mass of your ship. <laughs> I, I I knew it was small. I didn't know it was that small. <laughs> well, I had been dropped off at the head of the pier by a cab driver. I had my wooden footlocker. 
I had my sword. I was all dressed in whites. I thought it was a formal rollboard ship thing. <laughs> uh, uh, I was all by myself. So I left myself there and I headed for the little stick. I got aboard that after going through this big merchant ship was under repair. There were five sailors in the pilot house, bare-chested. I didn't know they were sailors. They were playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am in my whites with my sword hanging oh my down my side, uh, wondering what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so I stand there and I said, pardon me, yeah, who's in charge here? Guy about thirty-five says I am. I said, I told him who I was, and I'm the executive officer of the ship. And he said, Oh yeah. He said, Maybe you could tell us what's going on. <laughs> it seems that they had been placed aboard a barge, the PC four seventy-six from some small town in Wisconsin. I think it was not Manitowoc, but uh, where they build it. They had assembly line construction. Mm. And they had towed them down the Mississippi and parked them on this pier, and they didn't really know anything. Hmm. Uh, they expected me to know something. <laughs> <laughs> they were very, uh, uh, didn't pay much attention to me. So I left. <laughs> and I went through the ship down below. Of course, the lights were all out. And I went to the exec's room, about half the size of this room, with two bunks and one desk. So I sat there and what, what should I do? So I got a yellow pad and I sat down and wrote what I should do. <laughs> it was all wrong. Rick, this sounds like the like that opening scene in the movie you recommended to me. This young officer shows up and his ship is basically covered in vines and it's not it's not seaworthy. <laughs> and uh he has this tiny tiny crew of a couple of enlisted sailors and they have to uh oh, you're talking about pt 109 yes there you go yeah that yeah. sounds like a mikhail's navy scenario there <laughs> that's really what it was i was in mikhail's navy in fact uh <laughs> they were asking me questions i didn't have answers i thought i was going to war i knew my ship was headed for the pacific uh, we had all these boxes full of supplies and paper i said put them in the bilges <laughs> Uh, turns out we couldn't get paid because the forms were in the buildings. Oops. <laughs> well, they said about three days after I was on a PC boat, doing absolutely nothing, but went wondering what I should do. Uh, there was no one in the uh, area that knew anything about the ship. And this was the 8th Naval District. They were busy doing other things. A lot of troop ships came through there. Finally, the captain came came aboard, and he was about a year older than I was. But he had a little bit more experience. He had been a navigator on a large cargo Navy ship, and he had a full ROTC course in college, compared with my three-month 90-day uh, wonder course. <laughs> so he knew a little bit more about who to talk to and what to do. Uh, and we got straightened out and uh, were told what to do. And a lot of supplies came, men came aboard, and we put the ship together. Good. Very good. I'll skip to the time when we were heading out of New Orleans. We were ordered to go to Key West and learn how to uh, use the sound sonar 
and then head for the Pacific. Well, the day getting underway, we, by that time I was a pretty good sailor, I thought. <laughs> uh, and we had got to know each other pretty well, the sailors, and there was one other officer, it was the engineering officer. He had never been to sea, and he was worried about being seasick. <laughs> he of had all good things. reason to worry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, about 10 o'clock in the morning, we were told to depart. We were loaded up, fuel, everything, and... The Mississippi has a current, about two, three knots, and we were parked on the uh, pier, and the current's coming down this way. Saw the captain, we saying some people on, on the dock waving goodbye, and the captain, heave around line one, pull your bow in, you know, single up your lines, and then he has just the one line holding the bow and one other line and to keep from going back. And just all back one third and taking the line. So we go out like that and like that. The current put us right against the dock. Hmm. And we slid down to the dock, a big long dock. We slid down to the dock and he stopped. And <laughs> this is really funny. And he steamed up to where we were before and tried it again. Only this time he backed two thirds. <laughs> and the current slapped us down. Oh, man. And there was a guy in a tugboat watching us <laughs> about 50 feet out. And he went like this to me. So I went to midships. He said, uh, ask the captain if he wants me to pull him out. And the captain said, no, no. It would be embarrassing. Right. <laughs> uh, no. Then he said to me, tell the captain, go ahead on his inboard engine and back two-thirds on his outboard engine and put his rudder left over. So I went and told the captain who had sent me down below to get night seamanship. <laughs> <laughs> and I got it work. Hey, there you he, go. He all had two-thirds on the inboard engine and backed out of the outboard engine, left full rudder, taking your lines on the current, just grabbed us and wow. right out in the middle of Mississippi. And the, everyone laughing and saying. <laughs> <I like that>. <laughs> <laughs> well, then now, uh, our job is to get from New Orleans to the Gulf. And uh, the Mississippi is not straight. The captain knew that I had been qualified as OOD, so he let me con the ship. He went down and went to, took a nap. I felt pretty good. You know, here I'm conning this ship all by myself in the Mississippi River, and it's wide. and. Uh, I can speed up. And we did that for about, oh, maybe a half hour. We came to a big curve, and I saw I could see the mass of this big ship coming toward us. Well, I said, well, he'll stay in his side of the channel, and I'll stay in mine, no problem. There is a problem. Because <laughs> when he, a big ship in the Mississippi River, and I didn't know this, when they get to a curve, you probably know it, but I didn't, the big ship actually makes the turn wide. He doesn't stay on his side of the channel. He comes over the other side because mm -hmm. he can't make a short turn. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I didn't know that. So I stuck to my right side of the channel, expected him to stick to his right side. <laughs> it didn't work that way. <laughs> oh, no. He came over my side, and I was heading right for him. I said, well, he'll change. But he didn't change. Oh, no. And I got a little worried. And I was heading right for him. And he wasn't budgeted to get over on his side of the channel. At the last minute, I realized I better do something. I turned, and I went as close to that guy as I am to you. Wow. And it was full of troops. 
and they set up this big roar. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that was a, I was hot dogging. <laughs> and my own crew thought I was hot dogging. I just didn't know. <laughs> and we were by, and he blew four whistles. It was a danger signal. Thank God it didn't wake the captain. <laughs> and, Captain's and, none the wiser. And <laughs> one minute, I was past him. Wow. I, I, I never told the captain, which is wrong. You're supposed to report all this. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. Not right? now. Not, well, it's oh, a little he, late. He, oh, Anne. <laughs> he, he learned later how much I knew and didn't know. <laughs> because 10 minutes after that incident, I was exhilarated, especially with the roar of the thousands of troops. Amazing. And I speeded up 15, 16 knots. And I didn't know, but I went by a marina. And I was enthralled by big waves, wave big propellers in those small ships. <laughs> it was making big waves, and it was uh, watching them hit the beach. I didn't know there was a marina there. Oops. Make the story <laughs> short, uh, we smashed some boats. <laughs> I smashed some boats. <laughs> and months later, we got a letter of $25,000 they demanded. Oh, my gosh. And the Navy paid it. Yeah. I kept expecting a court-martial. <laughs> But the Navy was very kind. Yeah. It makes me wonder how many of these accidents were happening during this time. Because like you said, a lot of people, a lot of the sailors probably weren't ready uh, at the time for, you know, to go to war, to prepare to go down the, the Mississippi or any, things like that. You know? I tell you, there were a lot more than anyone wants to admit. <laughs> and I was in a lot of them. <laughs> Uh, they set up a, a trading school in uh, Miami called uh, uh, SCTC, Submarine Chaser. It was just getting started when we finally went to Miami. My, my hard luck didn't stop. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to Key West after being very seasick, crossing the Gulf. Mm -hmm. Everyone got seasick except for the pharmacist, mate. I put him on the... Uh, <laughs> he had his ways. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what pharmacist somebody said, but he didn't. So I put him on the sonar gear. I didn't know how it worked, but it was going ping. And I told him, if you hear any noise, tell us. He said, no, you can't put me on the sonar gear. He said, I'm a pharmacist mate. And the Geneva Convention says this and this. And mm. I have to report you if you do this. I said, report me, but get on the stack. <laughs> he was the only one that wasn't ceasing. He and the helmsman. Wow. Uh, so is that what the pharmacist mates are told? <laughs> yeah, you know it's unusual for the captain to be asleep when you're when you're uh, uh, sailing down a channel, anyway. So that was uh, very unusual. So uh, nowadays, I don't think that how that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Navy was you know pretty strict then, but he was tired. <laughs> uh, he wanted a nap. He did. Uh, I didn't know that he should be on the bridge. You know, going through. He, uh, he's right. You're going through a channel. The captain's got to be there. If he's not, there, he's anyway. Uh, that's what happened. Uh, we got to Key West. Spent a couple of days there, learning how to use the sonar gear. We're told to go to Miami. Got caught in a big storm. Lost our depth charges in the storm. I'm the navigator now. We ran aground. Trying to get in Miami Sea Channel. Oh my gosh! We were lost. The compass, <laughs> the, the compass was out. The gyro compasses go out, and ours were out, spinning all over. Magnetic compasses, unless they are uh, calibrated, 
to reflect what the gyro does. So, well, I, we didn't do that. I didn't know. It's late in the morning, late late at night, about midnight, maybe one in the morning. We didn't. We thought we knew where we were going, heading for Miami. We saw this big, dark thing, and a lookout yells, "I see a ship! I see a ship!" And he was up in the crow's nest. Our PCs have a little crow's nest up in the mast. You know that, that's not the way you say "I see a ship." You say "ship" on the starboard bow. So far, <laughs> I see a ship. I see a ship. Where do you get? I got to the voice. Where's the ship? Over there. Over there. Ah, yes, very. <laughs> He's pointing. Very descriptive. I said, "Where?" He said, "I said, what side?" He said, "Port bow. Port bow." Thank you. And then the captain saw it. Big merchant ship going on the opposite course. Mm. It's wartime, so we have a challenge. We challenge him. He gives us some answer we don't know, uh, <laughs> right or wrong. <laughs> but it looked like good. we knew what we were doing. So we asked the uh, ship, where are you going? What's your destination? He said, Miami. And we said, what? He's going that way. We're going this way. And we're going to Miami, too. <laughs> well, that's, that can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, either you're wrong or we're very wrong. And I'm, I'm the navigator now. I'm a very proud navigator, but very poor one. <laughs> Uh, so we asked him his position, and he gives us his position. We said, my God. <laughs> asked him his destination, Miami, so we turned around and followed him. <laughs> and he was right. He was Another going escort. To Miami. You know? We made it to Miami about four in the morning. Of course, my compasses, all of them were out. Everybody was seasick. Uh, we'd lost uh, most of our depth charges, <laughs> and the compasses were out. Wow. Hmm. You, and you say, did this happen to a lot of ships? Well, look what happened to one ship in the space of you know, two or three months. <laughs> that, there's your evidence right there. <laughs> anyway, we got stuck on this rock. It's a Malloy Channel. There's a big rock. There's a main ship channel going into Miami, and there's a channel called Malloy coming down like this. And the rock is over here. And this current from the... Malloy Channel coming down to the big one will actually push you over there. I knew the rock was there. Cause I told the captain, there's a big rock on the southern side of the channel. Okay. But we didn't know where we were. You take your position by buoys. That doesn't really help. Mm -hmm. But we were just about to come right a little bit when the mast started to shake. Oh. <laughs> and we had the lookout up there, and he started to scream, what's going on? So all stop, all back. We couldn't get off this rock. Oh my gosh! And we're waiting out there, and he didn't want to back and go back and forth because you're ruining your propellers, which we'd already done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, a tugboat came by, and he sent a message to the control tower and sent help. And another big tub came, tug came. By that time, the tide had come in, and we floated off. We couldn't move because every time we oh went one third, the mass started to shake like hell. Oh, oh my gosh. So he took us under tow and towed us into the, uh, uh, all the plush yachts in Miami. <laughs> so here we are, 10, 11 in the morning, being towed in these nice channels, all the people watching us. And we looked like hell. You know, <laughs> the storm had torn stuff all over it. They took us to a shipyard, and there was a, these railroad cranes, 
and they pull you out of the water. Well, they parked us there. They didn't do that. And uh, we spent the night there. <laughs> You're not going to believe the next thing now. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we, we were all happy that we got what we did. And the captain's wife had come to Miami, and he left the ship for dinner, uh. leaving me in the ship. Yeah, the engineering officer had made the trip. So I said, well, I put my uniform on. I went to Miami. They have something to eat. And I came back about 10 o'clock and walked up the gangway, and there was only one guy there. The ship's very quiet. I said, where's the crew? He said, across the street. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Big bars are. Yeah, I bet. And I got real mad because I was a smart enough exec to know that that wasn't right. Right. Uh, I went over there and opened the door and was about to yell. And this, one of my chief petty officers put his arm on my shoulder and said, Mr. Sotis, he said, uh, I'll bring them all back, but just have a beer with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked around, and all the crew were looking at me. Uh, they were all drinking and having a big time. Mm -hmm. So I said, maybe he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a beer and left. And I waited, and yeah, they all came back. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, for some harrowing sea stories, and I feel like... <laughs> We've had quite a few. You've like, had... All before even really engaging with uh, Nazi Germany in the Atlantic at all. Wow. You know, I wondered what I had gotten into. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. We weren't the only ship in this condition, mm. but we just happened to be conspicuous. <laughs> right. uh, we we went alongside the pier in Miami, and the head of SCTC had just been assigned a job, and we took a muster of our crew. This is right after the storm. I'm going back after we're on the ground. Because I was worried that we might have had some people go overboard. Mm. Oh, no. And uh, we, we took a muster or two people missing. And we had everyone get, had everyone get out on the dock. And uh, we searched and searched, still two people missing. You know, we got shook up. And uh, we had them all on the dock. Uh, I mentioned this to the head of SETC and our... When one of the bosom mates walked back on the fantail to relieve himself, see, our heads were all stopped up. <laughs> and below decks would smell terribly. Uh, it was, it's not a, a complimentary thing to say about the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope, I don't think you should print, I know you shouldn't print it. It just isn't right. Anyway, we won't print he, it. Went to himself. he walked on some canvas and he heard, couple of moans. These two sailors had tied themselves to a stanchion on the deck and covered themselves with heavy canvas. What? And their first words were, we have to have transfers. <laughs> if, we don't, if we don't get transfers, we're going to desert. Oh, my gosh. And they weren't fooling. They wrote a letter to the president and said that we cannot go to sea on ships like this. And we're, we come from respectable families, 
And unless we get a transfer to a more stable platform, we're going to desert. What do you do with people like that? You tell me. <laughs> we we eventually sent them ashore. Yeah. Uh, I I don't. It was pretty rough. Yeah. I know what they do in like pirate times, right? And we were. I think, <laughs> I think we were about the second or third PC boat that ever saw the Atlantic. After that, things went uphill. <laughs> oh, good. Nowhere we, to go but up. I guess. Like. We, we we got back to uh, and. The, I haven't even gotten to war yet. I know. That's, I was like, wow, all this right bef even before conflict. Well, we got went back to Key West and they had a PC boat there called the 451. It wasn't like the ones that were built en masse. It was a um, uh, two-decker. The one I had, all the rest of them were flush decks. This was flushed and up mm. like a yacht, but it was good. And it was the dream ship of the sound school. They were really good, well organized, and this was this was the navy. The exec on that ship talked me into swapping with him. <laughs> he want, he had to get married, and his wife his wife to be was going to she was in San Diego, and that was to be our port. Uh, he begged me on bended knee. Actually, a, an officer would get on his bended knee and beg me wow. to swap with him. He knew I wasn't too happy about going to the Pacific. <laughs> And I kind of weakened, and I said, well, I might, uh, but I put a lot on the ship, and I know all the guys and all that. But he took my my uh, reaction as, okay, he went to his captain, his captain said, all right, went to the captain of the 451, sure. And the luck luckiest thing that ever happened to me, I got, I swapped, just hmm. walked over, and I became executive of the finest PC boat in, in the Navy. Well, that worked out. Oh, it was really good. And uh, I learned an awful lot there. I became a teacher of sonar. Mm. Uh, I, I was teaching officer. All the new equipment that the, uh, they came out with, we tested. So we got real good on the uh, on sonar. We had some tough time. We used to go on patrols. We had burning ship episodes on the East Coast of the... Uh, U-boats were raising hell. Mm. They would always send us out, but we always got there after the U-boats had left. Burning ships, a lot of it, all right. the stuff in the East Coast that you read about in the papers, we were there after it happened. But it was a busy uh, month. Yeah, I can More imagine. Than that. Mm -hmm. I spent two years in the 451, and I became a sailor, a really good one. Because <laughs> uh, I had a, the crew was, Outstanding. They knew what they were doing. And we taught probably, uh, well, we taught a lot of the sonar people on the East Coast, captains, admirals, everything. And then uh, after two years on the 451, I was ordered to take command of the 451. But the fellow running the school wouldn't tolerate change. Oh. He, he, did, he wouldn't let his captain go. He didn't want to change anything. So those orders were, that happened again. Interesting. Yeah. But I don't blame him. The fellow's name was Bulwer. He was, he knew his business. And he had the orders changed twice. Well, that, so I put him for a transfer. <laughs> and I got to a DE. I became guttering officer of a DE. And I called, that was in the book. I said, that's what I got in the big leagues. Because mm. they assigned us to uh, escort the carrier, the Vogue. And they were good. 
And there were five of us DEs, and we spent the next, I think, year and a half with the Bogue. And I learned an awful lot with the Bogue. Well, I think, James, you wanted to read um, a synopsis of uh, of the captain's book. Yeah, it's actually, I didn't realize it was the back of the book itself, but um, there's just a paragraph here that I kind of want to talk about your book and kind of your experiences, and then kind of um, ask you a specific question about it. Uh, so reading from the back of the book, more than a mere recounting of events, living with a torpedo brings to life the tactics, procedures, people, and feeling of small ship action against a determined and capable adversary. Readers will marvel at the transformation in less than five years of a college senior who had never seen the ocean into, into a task commander in control of three combat-tested warships, a progression unlikely to be repeated in a modern Navy. Uh, that's the way it happened. Uh, and, you know, uh, that little PC boat I was on and the DE working with the carrier, the Bogue, and from the PC, was probably the best training any naval officer could get anywhere. The captains of the carriers were risk takers, mm. really risk takers. Interesting. I would uh, not have, I would not have thought that would be true. <laughs> and uh, we even said that... Uh, they think they're collision proof <laughs> <laughs> because at night, see, we, uh, I think we instituted night flying, not me, but the carrier. Mm -hmm. And flying at night, you don't want to do that, right. especially in the Atlantic. Uh, just an incident going, when they, we first started uh, flying at night, it's bad enough flying in day, daylight in the Atlantic. And the carrier's doing this all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't stay still. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. And uh, at night, though, we were ordered to be the plane guard for the first night guard, night flying. That means with 1,000 yards astern of the carrier, a little bit to the starboard. And then the carrier captain tells you to turn on your yard arm lights, which the pilots use for horizon. Mm. And then they have lights on the carrier deck shine upward. Uh, you know, because we're in U-boat territory. We know their U-boats are. And these fires would take off and come back at night. they wiggle over us and pump. And the ship is, the carrier's going like this. And they got asked to bring them down at the right angle. And of course, we had, had them go in the water. Oh, wow. But we picked them up. Which uh, destroyer are we on? D which D? Uh, Willis. W-I-L-L-I-S. Oh, okay. Uh, we were with the Bogue for right. all of the last half of their, and they were good. Good, and I say risk takers. One captain of the Bogue didn't like the Navy uh, uh, maneuvers. So he said, we're going to use football. He was a football player. Ah. <laughs> right in run. Kind of man. <laughs> Uh, off tackle, 45 degrees, <laughs> dead ahead. Uh, I forgot what you call that, but the worst one was Statue of Liberty. <laughs> you know what a Statue of Liberty play is? I football? know the play, yeah. So yeah, it's 180 degrees. That means he'd be fine going along like this, and we're in front of him, and he executes, executes the Statue of Liberty play. <laughs> that means he goes all the way around. So we have to maneuver to stay in front of him. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you right now, I didn't do it very well at first. But we got good. We got very good. <laughs> so just to clarify for listeners what the Statue of Liberty play was, at least 
for what I understand, now maybe maybe it meant something different uh, back in that time, but when I hear Statue of Liberty play, I imagine the quarterback going back, <laughs> pretending to pass, but he puts the ball behind him and the running back runs and grabs it and runs around and hopefully uh, scores a touchdown. But <laughs> Well, you're, you're right. But, you know, we never thought about football. So we just get to your position. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> at night. And uh, Carrier didn't always do what he said he would do. You know, they're, they're hunting for the wind. Mm. And they come around, look for the wind, and they go like that. And the people of the DEs aren't perfect. And the collision, they happen. You know, you're going this way and the carrier's going that way. <laughs> and you hear, hear it from the carrier's going, get the hell out of my way. I guess that's, <laughs> I guess that's where the Statue of Liberty play comes in, because yeah. crossing in, in a way. Interesting. Well, uh, the part of the Statue of Liberty play was that you had to reverse 180 degrees. Ah, uh, okay, okay. That's what you're saying. And yeah. We didn't like that at all, especially at night, you know. But we got good. We we spent probably the whole year chasing submarines at night. And, uh, yeah, I read about the uh, Bogues a lot. Uh, my my father's uh, ship was uh, the Chatelaine. It was escorting the Guadalcanal, and uh, and as you probably know, uh, they uh, I know the Chatelaine. Yeah, they, you know, they captured U boat five hundred five. Yeah, and uh, uh, my dad. Uh, I didn't re realize this until I read something recently, but they. Uh, the U-boat fired a torpedo at my dad's ship, but it went under his ship. Oof. So uh, thankfully, uh, yeah, that you know, U-boat ship was, was, was tenacious. <laughs> but just, you know, Chatelaine's famous now, and the submarine that they captured, yeah, was it? Was it? It's in Chicago now. Yeah. yeah, at the at the Museum of Science and Industry. Yeah, I yeah. got it mixed up with the Davis. It was torpedoed. Yeah, and that's another reason why we need to go to Chicago. It's true. <laughs> well, yeah, we uh, we're gonna take a trip up and uh, see some museums. We'll add this to our list, James. It's gotta be. Gotta be. Yeah. Gotta have. Uh, some of the things I've been saying here make the Navy look pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I hope you don't put it in a book. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. we won't put yeah. it in a book. That I can uh, promise. Well, I think... What but I, I don't mind. <laughs> I would speak anywhere in the Navy. These things happened, and the readiness in the Navy was completely lousy. And the people running the East Coast, I forget the Admiral's name, they, he's the wrong guy. It strikes me that there seems like there was a lot of room for making mistakes and getting better at something right. without without really too many consequences except, you know, hey, sailor, don't do that again. You know, you made a mistake. And I recently had a conversation with Mike Stevens, our CEO, who described uh, when he was a young sailor, an incident where he had he had messed something up. Um, yeah. And he thought he was going to get court-martialed or demoted or something <laughs> like that. And and none of those things happened, right? He was he had recognized he had done something incorrectly and was given the leeway to to learn from those mistakes and given some grace. And yeah. I think that's that is kind of a nice takeaway for me that that's the way we learned. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't mind saying I got really good at handling a ship, but you wouldn't but, have if you had just been oh yeah kind of, one mistake and gone. Yeah. It doesn't work that I'd way. Hit another ship, not hard. <laughs> yeah, it's just a fender bender. Well, <laughs> just see the DEs, mm -hmm. diesel DEs. When you stop and you want to reverse, it's a, it takes air pressure 
to um, get the engine started. Mm -hmm. Well, if the air pressure dropped, it went away. They couldn't uh, reverse the engines. At one time, I was coming in like this, all stop, coast a bit, and all back two thirds to stop the ship. And they don't answer the bell. <laughs> and I think it's two thirds and not a whipper. And you're heading on this guy. And at the last minute, they, it comes online and I hit this other ship. Not hard, but hard enough to bend the gun tub. My bow bent the gun tub and make the people on the beach of the big ship watching it think that I came in fast and beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to report to him. He said, boy, that was a nice landing. <laughs> I said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> $25,000 of fix. This is in Guam after I got uh, command of the ship. Uh -huh. uh, I do know the DE skippers, once they had a chance to uh, play with the ship, it got real good. And when we worked with the Bogue, you see, every time the carrier wanted to fly, he would. No, we couldn't use the radio because German subs could uh, detect it. Okay. So he would put the F flag, Fox flag, at the dip. That's halfway up. So you hear the big scream on there. Fox is at the dip. Fox is at the dip. And Fox is too blocked. That means when it's up the top, he's going to turn. But the guy didn't always turn. <laughs> oh, no. You know, he was sometimes waiting to get a bit of hell on the wind. And uh, that would help us get out of position. And he would raise hell with us because we were out of position. Mm. We have that sort of stuff. But it was the best training I ever had. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I, I think experience does a world of... You know, there there's something to say with the current academy and, and everything like that and how they prepare... And whatnot, but experience is the is the greatest teacher. Absolutely, we call that OJT. Yeah, OJT. well, there was one one thing on the uh, job training. Oh, I was really proud of. Uh, we used to wonder how much better the, uh, our own submarines were uh, than we were. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our squadron was ordered to Guam, which was a big sub base, mm -hmm. and we 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 reported to the submarine people there. And they were curious, too. Uh, about four or five months after the war ended, they uh, had a war game where three, our three DEs, three of us, would escort the big submarine tender they had there. They wanted to give him some sea time. At the same time, we were going, looking at the islands to see if any of our pilots had been stranded there. Mm -hmm. So for about three weeks, maybe three, four weeks, we had this two-sided war game. Huh. And we had these, see, in Atlantic, we had we finally had these search planes. These, they put big searchlights on the, on the bay, mm -hmm. and they would catch submarines on the surface and blind them. Oh. Our submarine people had never seen that. <laughs> so the first night we had this uh, game with our own subs, you know, they went out, way out, and we came in. They knew our track, and they were trying to get to us. But they didn't know we had the search planes. <laughs> and he, he got all, there was eight, eight of the submarines. He got all eight of them on the surface. So they made us send the, sub, the plane home. So we couldn't use it. But, oh, so like, oh, that's cheating. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's too good. Too OP. Please nerf. 
One of the Sorry, things that, that, that happened there, during this three-week game, the uh, U.S. submarines made 234 attacks, and only one were they uh, say that this is successful. Wow. Now, these statistics came from the submarine people, mm -hmm. not from us. So it's not biased. <laughs> and they shot 32 torpedoes, and we loaded the torpedoes with water, uh, no hits. Uh, they were good. One thing they didn't know, and and I haven't read anywhere, but it happened. The sonar range in the Atlantic is about 1,800 yards. It's the best. But it, where I was at northern Guam, it was 8,000 yards. Does it have to do with the salinity of the water? It, well, with salinity and the, uh, all kinds of uh, chemical factors. Mm. It's real science. But it was 8,000 yards, wow. and we knew exactly what they were doing. Hmm. Wow. And we detected every one of 234 attacks, our 3Ds. I thought someone would pick that up and print that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if... Uh, it, it's embarrassing because uh, our subs did an awful big job in the Pacific, mm -hmm. and this might detract a little bit from that. Mm. Well, George, we really appreciate you coming here and talking with us about about your book, but also your experiences. Because honestly, with Voices of the Sea, that is that is why we do this. We want to hear the voices from our veterans, from people who are actually serving, you know, the sea services, and hear the things that you don't hear on, read in the newspapers, or maybe hear in more official podcasts or things like that. And I think a lot of these experiences, while you're saying, oh, you know, I'm, I don't know if I want to put the Navy in this kind of a light. I really don't. Oh, no, I, I, <laughs> I totally, we're not, we're not trying to throw shade on the, na on the Navy not at, at all. all. But it is very interesting to hear these kind of stories because it's truth. It, it happened. And we mm -hmm. want to tell that. Absolutely. And I, yes, thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been a pleasure kind of hearing. <laughs> I, I was going to, we were going to ask, you know, what stories didn't make it into the book? And it sounds like there are just so, <laughs> so many, <laughs> so many that you could tell. Well, because um, you're writing another one. Is that, is that like a part two or is that true? I, I have it here. That's part of Oh, well, yeah. Oh, we already have part two out. Oh, you know, yes. some Excuse of these strange things continued. Yeah. I got a job commanding an underground command installation for nuclear warfare. And we had two of the largest computers in the U.S. Wow. Wow. Uh, slated for us in 1960 when no one knew what a computer was. <laughs> yeah. Especially me. Uh it was, and at the time, the, uh, the installation, I was told, was it could handle an atom one atomic blast, hmm. and you'd be safe. I had two, three huge generators. I used to share p making power for uh, with Honolulu. Hmm. I had a poison gas protection. The doors, my doors were as thick, this thick. I would close the doors during the drills, and you could feel the treasure. It was an underground tunnel drop. Gosh. It was, it was very strange. Mm. And the strangest thing is, I was the only one in the Navy like that. Hmm. You go to a ship, they have what this guy should do, what that should do, what departments is. This thing, nothing. Wow. The Air Force were tenants in this place, in intelligence people. They had some small computers, and we learned a lot from them. Hmm. 
more on-the-job training. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But we got so – they sent me some really fine officers. But we none of us knew whether this was the end of our career or not. Mm. I thought it was. <laughs> I tried to get out of the job because <laughs> I had job. I had an assignment to be a chief of staff of a destroyer flotilla, which is a pretty good job. Mm. And they changed it and sent me to this building, an mm. empty building. That's what, it was an empty building, underground with nine-foot concrete walls. Wow. And two large computers, <laughs> whatever that was. <laughs> and I tried to get out of it. I went to St. Pack. I wanted to see Admiral Felt, but they sent me to his personnel officer. And I asked him, you know, I explained to him, you know, I didn't come all this way in my career to be commanding officer of a building. <laughs> an empty, and that's what it was. And But he, and he understood. Uh, and he said, uh, he, I was told they asked for me. Hmm. And I knew that was not right. Mm. And I told him that he said, "You're right. What we didn't want you. We wanted a uh, an officer who had successful command of a destroyer. Mm. They thought a lot of destroyer skippers. That's the right doing. You know, if you want a good man, you get destroyer people. Anyway, uh, I called the bureau. And they wouldn't let me out. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the detailer got mad. And they oh. don't do that. They're very nice. He, he hung up. He says, carry out your orders. Oh, my. Well, that's the end of that discussion, So I, I went, home, I talked, <laughs> went home and talked to her, and the job came with a beautiful big house on the beach. Oh. Sold. On the beach in Hawaii. Yeah. I mean, that's And right good. across the way is Diamond Head. And right oh, at the, so right you had to walk through then, yeah. Right at the entrance of the channel. And you could wake up every morning and watch the carriers going in. And... Well, that sounds that's lovely. Beautiful. You know, I guess slight tangent. My my parents are currently living in Oahu right now, um, so I got for the first time got to go to Honolulu and to see Diamond Head and see some of the historical sites and whatnot. It's it's beautiful. Oh yeah, I'm jealous. And the house that's is, where we should go, James. Yeah, I've never I been mean, to Hawaii. Hey. <laughs> this house is brand new. Wow, it had been for some other job. I forget that he canceled it, mm. and uh, that turned out to be nice. It so I had that job nice. for two years, yeah. and not. And in the book I wrote, I said, I, I received no orders. I, I talked to Admiral Felt about four times. <laughs> the first time, uh, he says, I, I was walking through the building, and he happened to be doing the same thing. He said, how are you getting along? And I said, not good. <laughs> he said, what's wrong? I said, well, there's, a, there's nothing about these command centers. It was a Fleet Operational Control Center was the official title. It was very... Uh, uh, impressive title. At that time, I didn't control even the flushing of the water. <laughs> uh, but they had, the construction people had plans for it. Mm. And I really didn't know what those plans were. When they finished, brought their computers in, got, got everything up and running, it was really something. Mm. I had a war room for the Army, the Navy, uh, St. Pack Fleet. Wow. Uh, Commander Hawaiian Sea Frontier. Uh, I had nine war rooms, and each war room had a TV, big TV. I had two V stations, two TV stations. Uh, I had the biggest communication center in the Pacific. So That's they had amazing. big plans for that building then. Yeah, uh, but I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bigger than the Air Force. We, the Air Force used to run communications in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. 
But after a while, we started even picking up the astronauts. <laughs> that's that that's that's very, amazing. Very, uh, and all without not one single order. I got one order. <laughs> I got one order from Feld. After I t complained to him, it's hard to complain to a four star. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> but he's a really nice guy. He didn't say much. He just he says, George, I told him there's nothing, not a thing about what this fleet operation control center is supposed to do. He said, George, your job is to be flag captain for all the people that have war rooms. Wow. I had the Army, the Navy. He said, and I want you to make a call on every one of those admirals and generals and tell them that you are his right hand for what they want in their war rooms. Of course, being told to make calls of four-star <laughs> admirals and generals, nine, you know, kind of earth-shaking. But I did it, and it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the Air Force general, a famous guy named Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell. He's, he's famous in the Air Force. Ah. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a... Uh, anyway, I walked in there and I... I maybe I should him, know my dad's in the Air uh, Was in the Air Force. Yeah, maybe yeah. I should have. I mean, I should have I, I, he was a lawyer, so it's a little different. <laughs> I told his aide that... Uh, I was make, making a call on Admiral uh, General O'Donnell. He said, what for? I said, well, I'm the commanding officer of the Kenya Tunnel, fleet operations. And I said, all right. So he went in, he came back out and said, the general will see you. The first thing the general said was, you're the first naval officer I had as a flag captain. <laughs> <laughs> he started to laugh. But he enjoyed the idea of having a uh, Navy captain as his subordinate. I bet. <laughs> and would do anything he wanted. And I told him I would do anything you need or want in that tunnel. I said, your people can never tell you that they can't get it done because mm. that's my job. And he started nodding his head. He thank you. And I could see his aide taking notes. <laughs> but you know, it worked. The fellas knew what he was doing. It worked. That guy, that aide, he told everyone in that tunnel about this session I had with the, and they started asking me for things, and then I started asking them for things. And uh, they had a lot of big intelligence people there, and they knew their computers well. If it hadn't been for them, I would not have gotten started as fast as I did mm -hmm. with my computers. I had the two largest computers in the country. And the way I did, I would barter the time on the computer for other favors from them. Interesting. Wow. And I was the uh, commander of ASW Force, Sink Pack Fleet, Service Force, all had war rooms there. And once my people got to use the computers, and no one knew how to use computers in those <laughs> yeah, days. I know. If it wasn't for IBM and the uh, David Taylor model basins, mm. I'd still be doing some strange thing. <laughs> But after my officers got started, uh, they could come up with things I could, uh, we can give you the total of all the oil that's afloat in the Pacific. Wow. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's impressive. And, uh, they had a big program called Sea Surveillance that some brilliant guy in the CNO had kicked off before the computers were made. And I got that system. Hmm. And it was good. The last half of my tour there, I enjoyed a lot. The first half, right? Not so I, I, I was like, oh, what? 
what's the point? What, what's going on here? Right. <laughs> well, I, I thought they had uh, drummed me out of the Navy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, George, on behalf of the Navy League of the United States, I just want to thank you for joining us today and telling us at least a few of your amazing sea stories. I, we could... I could talk to you and listen to you all day. You could write a whole book about it. Oh, wait oh, a minute. Wait. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to embarrass the Navy at all. No, no we, we will not. We, no, we are advocates uh, and supporters of the Navy mm -hmm. and all of our seasons. Because even if it's true, it's, the Navy made a lot of mistakes. Sure. And I mean, I, I think that, is, that goes to your point. And I made a lot point. of them. <laughs> <laughs> we, I'm, I think any story that we tell, um, you know, the truth of of the experiences that people have can only help to either learn from those experiences or, you know, inspire the next generation to serve and say, you know, we heard this amazing veteran talk about all of these crazy things that he got to do in the Navy. I want to join the Navy <laughs> and see <laughs> yeah. if I can uh, one-up him. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, you can see I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I wouldn't change it for anything. There you go. I love Rick, it. Rick, would you also say, as we close, would you also say you had a lot of fun in the Navy? As you... Indeed, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed most of it. I can't say enjoyed all of it, but I <laughs> enjoyed most of it. Uh, served under some really good people, and uh, especially enjoyed my flying crews. The, the the people that I flew on my missions with, and uh, I really had a, a wonderful time. And I miss it quite often. It's been a long time now. You Thank probably you. had your share of mistakes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another podcast, right? right. <laughs> well, we will put uh, we will put uh, information about your books in the show notes for the show. Um, and when this episode is edited and live in the world, we will definitely send you a link so you can you well, can thank listen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, oh, absolutely. I like getting this off my chest. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great. Good, good. The VOS Podcast is a production of the Navy League of the United States. A big thank you to our board of directors and Navy League headquarters staff for their generous support of this podcast, and even bigger thanks to the men and women who serve. Be sure to share VOS with your friends and spread the good word. You can email us at voicesofthesea at navyleague.org. You can also find out more information about the Navy League at www.navyleague.org. Follow us on social media at Navy League US. And you can listen to more Voices of the Sea through Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.